Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation for UPMC. Today, we're going to explore everything about metallobetalactamase enzymes. What are they? What's the global epidemiology of these enzymes? Are there any inhibitors or treatment options in the pipeline? And how do we currently treat them in the absence of these inhibitors? Our listeners at Breakpoints love everything in the gram-negative resistance space. These episodes tend to be quite popular, so hopefully this episode answers a lot of your burning questions and becomes one you like to listen to again and again. Funding for this episode was provided by Shinogi, and we are very thankful to our sponsors. We are so blessed today to have two of the best guys in the whole wide world to discuss this topic. So first, Dr. Ryan Shields makes his return to Breakpoints. I'm like so excited. I'm smiling very big. So Ryan, as you guys know, is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. He's the director of the UPMC Presbyterian Antibiotic Management Program. He's also the co-director of the newly formed Precedent Research Network, which is evaluating novel gram-negative targeted antibiotics in the real world. And he runs a really phenomenal research lab here at Pitt. But more importantly, Ryan was my original Breakpoints partner in crime. So if you guys have been loyal listeners for all these years... Ryan was my very first episode co-host all the way back to ECMID 2019. And because Ryan's been on the pod so frequently, we always love to give a shout out to his awesome wife, Jenna. Hi, Jenna, if you're listening. Ryan also is a dad to two fantastic kids, a baseball coach extraordinaire, and just a wonderful human. So Ryan, welcome back to Breakpoints. Oh, thanks, Aaron. Happy New Year to you and to all of our listeners. Uh, It's really amazing where this podcast has come from, where we started. Uh, No thanks to me at all, but really all the credit goes to you and your co-hosts at SIDP. You guys have really done a phenomenal job with this. So happy to be a part of it. Well, thank you. But it's definitely because remember, you found us that secret room at Pitt the first time to record. And that really did find you. We used to record this in this really fancy studio, but now we are, you know, exclusively on our computers, but but thriving nonetheless. Okay, so next, I am so excited to introduce as well. Also returning to Breakpoints is Dr. Robert Bonomo. Dr. Bonomo is the Associate Chief of Staff at the Cleveland VA Medical Center and is the Senior Associate Dean and a Professor of Medicine in, this is quite the list, so get ready, guys, Pharmacology, Molecular Biology and Microbiology, Biochemistry, Proteonomics, and Bioinformatics at Case Western University School of Medicine. So if that list isn't enough to just tell you how wonderfully impressive this man is, his research interests include mechanistic basics of resistance to beta-lactam antibiotics, and beta-lactamase inhibitors, on the molecular epidemiology of multidrug-resistant gram-negative bacteria. He's also currently an author of the IDSA Guidance for the Treatment of Gram-Negative Infections, and he is, quite frankly, one of the nicest, smartest, most wonderful humans I've ever met, just a joy to run into at an ID conference. And so, Robert, we are thrilled to have you back on the podcast today. Well, thank you very, very much, Aaron, and it's a real pleasure to be here with you and Ryan and to have a great conversation about a very interesting uh, topic to all of us. And, you know, I, I look forward to learning from both of you. Yay. All right. Well, let's get started, guys. And let's talk about metallo-beta-lactamases. So uh, just for our audience, for some perspective and background as well, both Dr. Shields and Dr. Bonomo were on Breakpoints in October of 2021 to talk about the basics of gram-negative resistance. And so in those episodes, we have one that goes through efflux and porin channel mutation. And then a second episode that actually focuses on beta-lactamases, but we really dove into ESBLs, which is, of course, our most common thing and we see in the communities on the rise, et cetera. 
And so those were wonderful. Those were a joy to record. They're fantastic episodes. So I highly encourage y'all to go back and listen to those. They're titled A Nefarious Orchestra, Gram-Negative Resistance Mechanisms, Part 1 and Part 2. So again, those were on the pod a few years ago. And now today we're back. And today we're going to spend the entire hour on a very specific enzyme group, the metallo-beta-lactamases. So Robert, can you start us off here and tell us what exactly is a metallo-beta-lactamase and why are they different from all of the other beta-lactamases? Well, uh, fundamentally, uh, a metallo-beta-lactamase is a beta-lactamase. So just by the name, you know, it's going to be breaking down uh, beta-lactam antibiotics, but they are different. Let me review a couple of facts to get us all on the same page. Uh, most of the audience knows that there are four classes of beta-lactamases, A, B, C, D. How smart. And we just basically have to know the alphabet, but it's a little more than that. The class A, C, and D are what we call the serine beta-lactamases. Class B are the metallos. And this classification, although simple, is based upon the, un the fundamental amino acid sequence differences between the different enzymes. A feature of the metallo-beta-lactamases that are not present in the class A, C, and D is that the metallo-beta-lactamases have a zinc ion in the active site. Most of them have two zinc ions. The, uh, some have one, but they actually have a metal ion, which is very different than the serine-based enzymes. And they also have a unique structure. They, they have what we call a unique fold. It's an alpha-beta-beta-alpha fold. So they look different. They don't look like the serine enzymes, the serine enzymes all kind of look alike, sort of. Some are bigger, some are smaller. These look obviously very, very different. And the, uh, the presence of that zinc ion really defines mechanistically and catalytically how different these enzymes are. And unlike A, C, and D, these enzymes are really good at breaking down. What, and I think a good way to think about this is the bicyclic penicillins encephalosporins. And if you remember the notion that they get the bicyclic ones, then it it's automatic for you to know that estreonym, which is a monobactam or one cycle, is not broken down by the beta-lactamases. So the presence of that zinc ion, either one or two, defines their activity. And what a lot of us don't remember is that they also break down clavulanic acid, solbactam, and tazobactam. These are bicyclic uh, compounds, uh, bicyclic penicillins, if you will, and they break them down. So the three different classes, there are three sub, you know, subclasses, B1, B2, B3. like Just ABC, as clever as ABCD, right? Yep. <laughs> they're really smart, uh, smart enzymologists, I'll tell you. And, um, <laughs> you know, and the ones that we deal with clinically in the hospital uh, are the B1. So we have to remember, if you think about, you know, what's important, number one is always important. So the B1s where our main players now in the clinical arena, the NDM, the VIM, and the IMP variants that we have to deal with are from. But just because it's B1 doesn't mean that B2 and B3 are not important. B3 is uh, uh, very important when it comes to metallo-beta-lactamases that are in stenotrophomonas like the L1. And B2 is also important if we have to deal with a patient that has a aeromonas infection. Now, 
Ryan probably sees those a lot more than I do, and I'm sure you do because you guys have a big transplant center, so you get all the nasty gram negatives. I'm, you know, we're at a VA. We don't see as many, but we all, unfortunately, see too many of NDMs. We see too many VIMs and uh, not as many imps, but we see a lot of NDM and VIM in our country. And, you know, there are some real things to keep in mind, too. Uh, most of these are on mobile genetic elements or on plasmids, except for L1, which is chromosomally encoded. So if they're on plasmids, most of us know they have the propensity to spread very quickly. So plasmids is a bad word in, in, in the dictionary of uh, uh, metallobetalactamases because most of them are plasmid encoded. Yeah. I, I think that gets us on the same page. Yeah, that's a great summary. Thank you so much. And I think uh, it's, yeah, I think NDMs and metallobetalactamases are a, a big, scary word. I think sometimes we think of NDM, New Delhi metallobetalactamase, the original name, as being the most common, and, and that's all people think about. But there are several others. The other two common clinically are the VIMS, which is Verona Integron Born Metallobetalactamase, because it was first isolated in Verona, Italy, very aptly named. And then IMP, IMP, which was actually named, I think, because of its ability to hydrolyze imipenem, right? Um, but, and, I, and I'd like both of you to shed some light on this because I think it's important for our listeners to understand, the metallobetalactamases are not universally equal in their ability to hydrolyze the various carbapenems, cephalosporins, et cetera. So I think if I understand, you know, within IMP, VIM, and NDM, they, they're numbered as we identify new ones. And and different numbers may have different activities. Like, for example, IMP6 is actually bad at hydrolyzing miropenem, but we think of, you know, all metallos as, as hydrolyzing every carbapenem. So, like, is that true? And 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 how do we learn the hydrolytic activity of the different enzymes against well, carbapenems? Um, uh, it, uh, well, I have to go, when you mentioned IMP, I remember IMP when it was first um, reported in AAC. It was December of 1991, I think. And I remember opening up the, you know, it was the last paper in the resistance section, you know, when it was put together that way, you got, you know, then you got journals, you know, like that you hold in your hand, not that you look at online. And, um, and I remember looking at that article and, you know, this was reported from Japan and I knew some of the investigators and I said to myself, wow, this is a game changer. This is going to be very different. And, you know, you're always worried that even as we worry now, when there's a new player on the scene, it's going to change the activity of how you treat organisms. And we didn't, I wish we knew at that point what we know now in terms of infection control, et cetera. We would have been, yeah, we may have been ahead of the game. But like you said, though, the different NDMs, the different VIMs and the different IMPs, they evolve differently. The amino acid substitutions go in them and you know, probably one of the most notorious NDMs now is, you know, NDM5 and a very notorious VIM is VIM2. Uh, VIM24 is also a, a, a VIM that has expanded catalytic activity. But I think um, uh, even though some may be wimpy, you know, if you, you, you want to call that, their presence, though, can be greatly modified. And you know, what happens is that you get a strong, even though an amino acid mutation impairs the catalytic activity of one relative to another when you study it in vitro, keep in mind that a very strong promoter or being on a high copy plasmid or changing, for example, how an antibiotic gets into the cell, even with a bad metallobetalactamase can cause clinical resistance. And, you know, I, 
you know, I, 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 I worry that, um, you know, uh, we, we lose sight of some of that. So, you know, the big, you know, and each of these uh, different metallos have evolved under different pressures. You know, the ceph- you know, you can say, well, cephalosporin use can drive BIM evolution, uh, independent use, you know, you know, they, they can all be a little bit different. And, um, but I, I think our knowledge is still, uh, there's about 500 different variants that are, are, are described out there. Um, there's about 90 or so different types of metallobetalactamases. And what I think is the scariest thing is not the enemy we know, but the enemy we don't know. When you start mining these genomes, you find out there's almost about 2,000 of sequences out there that look like they're metallobetalactamases, and we've only really characterized about a quarter of that. So, you know, I think that there's a lot to be discovered yet. Yeah. Yeah. Let me uh, let me jump in there for a second, Robert, because listening to you and Aaron reminds me like we have like the coolest jobs on the planet, right? We get to talk about these kinds of enzymes and bacterial evolution. And when I think about metallos, you know, you mentioned the B1, B2, and B3 subclasses. And importantly, I think of them as like some chromosomally encoded um, metallobetalactamases and plasmid mediated. And, you know, maybe some of my contributions to the podcast here is if you want to win some bar bets, ask your friends which organisms encode chromosomally mediated metallobetalactamases and see if they can come up with bugs like Bacillus cereus or Bacteroides fragilis, maybe Chrysobacterium endologenes and some others. Um, but for the most part, you know, the one that we think about, as you mentioned, is Stenotrophomotis and a chromosomally encoded L1 metallo. And then the others, Vim and Benendium, are all plasmid mediated. Now, the other thing, just to add to what you said, Robert, that I think is so interesting is that a, even within these subclasses, let's say the, the B1 subclass that you mentioned, the sequence identity across metallobetalactamase is very different which is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to develop inhibitors because these metallos are not all the same, like many of our serine beta-lactamases. Um, so there really is great heterogeneity, and, and you're right. The, uh, the enzymes we don't know yet may be actually the worst. Yeah, and we did some work for uh, uh, Dr. Helen Boucher at, uh, um, at Tufts, and she had a very tough patient, that, a very difficult patient that she was dealing with. And she sent us this organism, Elizabeth Kingia, which has got two chromosomal beta-lact uh, metalloenzymes, you know, blob B and gold, you know, and we were lucky, you know, and, you know, every time you, you're right, we got the coolest job because every time you start investigating, you learn something and every day is a new day. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of challenges ahead, but I, I think we're very, very fortunate also that whole genome sequencing is changing the landscape for us, that now we know what's in there right away, and uh, uh, what's in there right away deepens our understanding and helps us uh, uh, treat patients better. Yeah, absolutely. One of the first case reports I did in residency was about an Elizabeth Kingia patient, I thought it was so fun to say, Elizabeth Kingia meningia septica. <laughs> I'm going to say that five times fast at the pub I meet you guys at in Barcelona when we play. Guess, right. that, guess that chromosome trivia. I'm, I'm excited. Well, I think the real lesson here is never make a bar bet without Robert being in your back pocket. Yeah, obviously. he's on my, I'm drafting him first in any kind of trivia forever. Okay, well, I want to talk about the epidemiology of metallobetalactamases because it's rising. And I think this is something very important for all clinicians to have on their radar, not just people at unique centers or whatnot anymore. But before we get into that, um, Ryan, I'm actually going to ask you guys to talk 
to piggyback on what Ryan just said about it, it's really challenging to develop inhibitors for metallobetalactamases. Indeed, none of the beta-lactamase inhibitors that are currently commercially available inhibit metallobetalactamases. We have some in the pipeline, which we're going to talk about later, but none of the options I can pull off my shelf right now to treat a patient inhibit metallobetalactamases. So um, of the of the BLIs, we do have some drugs, non-beta-lactams, of course, like fluoroquinolones, cefiterocol, and then some combinations that we've gotten creative with, which can it, treat metallobetalactamase infection, but there isn't a BLI that inhibits metallobetalactamases right now. Robert, why is that? Why is this so hard well, to develop? Um, you're right. There isn't one that's out there right now. And, um, you know, you we, we all sort of wanted drugs, the DBOs like Avimactam, to be good enough to do this because they were a big step forward developing that. But I think we're, we're getting close. And, you know, it, it's not all dark out there. We're not in this, you know, great underworld. I think there's some light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, people are trying hard to do this. And the reason it's difficult is because, you know, Making an inhibitor requires you to understand and almost marry the mechanism, right? You got to understand the mechanism of how these enzymes work. Once you understand that, you can start strategizing. And a way to do this is that, well, you can either bind right to the metal. If you bind to the metal, the metal can't be active and it can't activate a water molecule to do the bad news of what a beta lactamase is. So you can bind to the metal. You can pull the metal out of the active site. You can develop a compound that actually chelates, like EDTA, for example. It chelates right to the metal ion and it pulls it out. Or you could develop a compound that kicks the water out. So it comes in there, kicks the water out, so the water can't be activated by the two metal compounds. Or you can develop a compound that fools the metallobetalactamase. So it mimics what we call an intermediate in the pathway. Either it, it, it mimics the, 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 the product uh, that is going to be in, you know, Alejandro, uh, Professor Alejandro Villa and Professor Graciela Mahler have done a lot of nice work in developing some of these mimics. They fool the metallobetalactamase. Or you can go what like the new drugs that we're going to be talking about, tanyborbactam or QPX. You can mimic an intermediate and bind and find some place in the active site that you can attach to, so or make an interaction with. So there's a couple of strategies out there, and you got to remember we 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 knew about penicillin in the 1940s, right? We got the metallo, we got the first beta lactamase inhibitors around 1976. I was graduating college at that time. It's that long ago. And, uh, you know, we first learned about metallos like around 1966 and they were in soil bugs. We didn't, you know, they didn't really make a difference. So we, we didn't have as much of a head start, you know, with that, but we've come very, very far right now. And now, you know, by understanding how the mechanism works, uh, you know, uh, great scientists like uh, Alejandro Villa and others in the field, Chris Cofield and others in, you know, um, other places, they've, they've studied this mechanism very, very intimately and they've dissected it out and captured things like an anionic intermediate, which was described very nicely. And, you know, by knowing those mechanistic steps, you can develop an inhibitor. And you know, using those kind of approaches, you know, taking out the metal, uh, displacing the water molecule, mimicking an intermediate, you can get to it. And the new ones we got coming out, like, the, you know, cyclic boronates like TANI and QPX, 
they, they're good at mimicking an intermediate and attaching to making interactions. Yeah, that's fantastic. And we're going to talk a lot more about those inhibitors in the pipeline later in the episode. I think I actually had the opportunity to see Alejandro Vila talk at ID Week 2019. He, that was what first really got me into understanding metallos more mechanistically. And he said something else interesting, in addition to all the wonderful things you just said, in that because metallos do have this zinc-dependent active site and there's a metal present there, I mean, that makes it less selective. And like the enzymatic folds of a metallo-beta-lactamase look a lot more like human enzymes because of iron in, in humans. And so that developing metallo-BLIs actually resulted in more toxicity in some early studies too. And I thought that was really fascinating. And it's kind of reminiscent of why we don't have an efflux inhibitor because efflux pumps are so similar across bugs and human enzymes too, and they're just really toxic. And so that's, you know, we need efficacy, but we also need safety. And so that's the other end of the coin I thought was was interesting. Well, you know, now in, when, you, when a company or a lab uh, tries to develop this and, you know, you have to, you know, not only do you have to have the efficacy against the metalloenzyme, but you got to make sure you don't have these off-target effects, you know. Right. We have a lot of metallos and metallo matrix, you know, matrix right. metalloproteases. Um, right. That's a big doctor word, I know. Um, and, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it's like Elizabeth Kingia, right? And, uh, um, you know, we have these enzymes and the, the, the bar is set now so that you inhibit the metallo, but you don't have any off-target effects. Right. Always the goal in developing drugs, safe and eff- safe and effective. Um, OK, so let's talk about drug development. But before we do, Ryan, can you start us first with why? Why do we need metallobetalactamase inhibitors? Are these increasing? Are these common? Um, talk a little bit about the epidemiology of these bug uh, of these enzymes. And then are they found in all bugs? Is this a unique to Enterobacter thing? And then the kind of unique organisms like steno that we've mentioned just have the chromosomals? Or can these plasmids end up in all kinds of organisms? Yeah, that's a great question, Aaron. And there's a lot to unpack here. So I'll do my best to kind of lay this out for the audience. I think the first thing to understand in a way to differentiate this from other mechanisms of resistance that you probably become accustomed to hearing about now with beta-lactamases, predominantly KPC and CTXM, what really led to their success as being globally disseminated beta-lactamases is they were attached to clones in Klebsiella KPC, it happened to be ST258, or for CTXM, it happened to be ST131 E. coli, that become globally disseminated. NDM and other metallobetalactamases tend to have a lot of different hosts. They can be found across enterobacteriales, including enterobacter species, E. coli, Klebsiella, citrobacter. We can find them in non-fermenters like Pseudomonas and Acetobacter. Um, so the host varies, and I think that offers a layer of complexity and challenge for clinicians in identifying them uh, because it's a little bit different than what we've become accustomed to over the last few years. Now, in terms of the epidemiology, um, Dr. Bonomo has already mentioned, you know, the imipenemases or imp, which was first identified in Japan in the early 1990s, that still is endemic in that region in Japan and Australia, but at a very low prevalence. Probably where you're, globally where you'll find the highest concentration of metallobetalactamases, at least in enterobacteriales, is going to be Southeast Asia, India, subcontinent area, where you know NDM is largely believed to have derived from. And in fact, epidemiological studies prior to NDM being reported in 2008, uh, if you go backwards, you could find strains in 2006 and 7 that harbored NDM as well, likely suggesting that this enzyme was, was already endemic in that region before its discovery. 
So Southeast Asia and now the Middle East are really where the highest concentrations of metallos are. I think there are other concerning trends across the world, particularly in certain parts of Europe. Uh, Italy and Greece are now seeing increasing rates of metallo-beta-lactamases. Eastern Europe um, seems a whole potpourri of different beta-lactamases, including metallos. And then in South and Central America, we're seeing increasing rates of metallos and enterobacteriales as well. Now, speaking in North America, I think there's some interesting trends. We actually have some new epidemiological data that we didn't have five to 10 years ago. And that's, again, what makes this so fascinating. Um, Canada is actually a place where you wouldn't suspect you would find a lot of resistant gram negatives. Uh, but looking at some of the recent happy Canadian friends are just well, hanging out up there being. Yeah. But you know what? Canada is a cool place to go. And a lot of immigrants have decided to move there. And with them and global travel comes different enzymes, uh, both in Toronto. And I spent some time last fall in Alberta. Uh, NDM rates are on the rise and becoming the most common uh uh, carbapenemase identified in certain regions there. Uh, so it's interesting to see where, you know, places you might not suspect to see these enzymes, they're now common. Now let's talk about the U.S. Uh, for a, a brief few minutes here, because we have, I think, three sequential studies that really help demonstrate the change in what we're seeing for carbapenemase enzymes. Starting first with a, a project that Dr. Bonoma knows well, the Crackle 2 study, this was a prospective observational study of patients in 2016 and 17. They enrolled over 1,000 patients across 49 hospitals in 15 states in the U.S. And at that time, most people would say, you know, KPC is still the most common carb carbapenemase. And indeed, it was. A few things that are notable there. Across those 1,000 patients that had isolates, 59% harbored carbapenemases, meaning the other 40-ish percent either were unconfirmed CRE or didn't harbor carbapenemases. Among those bugs that did harbor carbapenemases, 92% produced KPC. The next most common was 3% NDM and 3% OXA48. So if you're looking at these data on the surface level, you would say NDM and other metallos are very rare in the U.S. Remind you, this is 2016 to 17. Let's fast forward now to a CDC study that was published um, from the Antibiotic Resistance Laboratory Network. This enrolled patients that are patient isolates that were referred to the public health laboratories in all 50 states. The isolate collection was done in 2017 to 19, and these isolates were confirmed to be carbapenem resistant. So they had confirmatory susceptibility testing. Across more than 42,000 enterobacteriales, um, there was a number of uh, different mechanisms identified. Um, but importantly, here again, 65% um, of isolate did not harbor carbapenemases. And I actually think this is something we don't talk about often in these discussions, that a large majority of CRE don't have any of these carbapenemase enzymes. Uh, but I will stay on track for the purposes of today and talk about metallos. Uh, across the carbapenemase-producing isolates in that series, 86% produced KPC, but now the rate of NDM was up to 9%. Oh. Again, a few years later maybe NDM is rising. I think the paper that caught a lot of attention most recently, and this was talked about in several uh, presentations I went to at ID Week this last year, um, is a paper from the JMI group who used one of their large surveillance networks. In this case, it was the Informed Surveillance Network, where they included consecutive enterobacteriales isolates across 74 medical centers in 36 states. 
Now, importantly, I'm trying to draw this chronologically because this isolate collection was done in 2019 to 2021. And what they found is that only 261 of those 27,000 plus isolates were CRE, but the rate of NDM appeared to increase from 2019 to 20 to 21. Now, the overall number of isolates is relatively small, but what adds some validity to these findings, not only the chronology of these three studies, but also what we're hearing anecdotally now. Uh, Jason Pogue and myself um, are doing this real world of comparative effectiveness network with precedents. We have over 40 hospitals and we hear this theme very commonly. We used to never see NDM and now we see it occasionally. And we know certainly we've had an outbreak here in Pittsburgh. I know there's been others in Michigan and along the East Coast. So it seems to be a trend that's increasing and gaining some traction. And Dr. Bonoma, I'd love to hear more about what you're hearing in Cleveland. Well, um, we do see it, yes. Um, to be honest with you, VIMS come up on the radar a little bit more because of the pseudomonas. And, you know, we uh, uh, there was uh, cases of uh, pseudomonas carrying VIM2, uh, a variant of them, and then we had that unfortunate case uh, um, that was described using the teardrops, uh, you know, pseudomonas infected. Uh, it was a VIM carrying uh, and guest carrying uh, pseudomonas originosa. It had two two types of uh, Morgan Morganelli at our in our program described a great ID fellow. She's now an attending at Metro. Um, uh, you know, she described this, and we're seeing more. We are seeing more. Um, but, you know, one of the things, as you were talking, I was thinking, I bet if we go back in our freezer collections and, you know, and find those, like, what was going on with this organism? You know, I bet we'd find out that there, you know, cases of NDM uh, were probably there before the, what we think. And I, I have a, I had the occasion to review a manuscript where it was found in a very unlikely spot. I, I can't say. Um, at this point, <laughs> and it was a, a, a very long time ago. It was a very long yeah. time ago. So hopefully yeah. it'll be soon. Um, uh, but, you know, if you go back in your freezers, I bet there's, you know, out of the hundred that were uh, collected, you know, routinely, maybe there's one or two that may have had a metallo. But, yeah. you know, like everything in microbiology and in medicine, as you go on in time, you become more frequent, become more frequent. And I hope we're not on the ascending part of that curve. You know, uh, you know. I, I hope we, we, we plateau at some point in, in, in the world, but, you know, you always worry. Yeah, and I think the other thing that, like, puts us on the clinician radar more so now than it ever has been is molecular diagnostics, right? We're looking yep. for NDM and, and VIM and IMP more than we ever have, and susceptibility testing to ceftazavian marrow vapor which are often the first clue that you might be dealing with a metallobetalactamase enzyme when you see resistance to those agents. And, and these are tests done routinely now in the clinical microbiology labs that weren't done five to 10 years ago. Um, and so now they're catching more attention. You're hearing more local outbreaks and clusters, and they're more easily identifiable to your point, Dr. Bonomo. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to understand that NDMs IMPs, VIMS, metallos in general can be found in all gram-negative organisms. And so it's not just Enterobacterialis. We talk about CRE a lot, but this is in all organisms. And I think for us, for pseudo, seeing that Ceftazavi resistance is a trigger. I mean, more commonly, we're seeing IMPC mutations there, but it's a trigger to start to screen. And we have these advanced technologies now to find them. 
I was, I was just going to mention on the pseudomonas, I think we'd be remiss without mentioning the ARLG POP study that looked for carbapenemases and pseudomonas globally. And, you know, there's a couple of things that really stand out to me there. And I think this is why travel history is so instrumental in what we're doing is thinking about where your patient has been, where they're coming from, what type of enzymes you might be suspicious of. But just quickly in that POP study, um, they enrolled 972 patients most of them from the U.S., actually, 527 from the U.S. But there's a really cool figure in the paper that kind of shows the distribution of carbapenemase enzymes in pseudomonas across the world. And specifically for metallos, where you're going to more commonly find metallo beta-lactamase producing pseudomonas is in the Middle East and in Australia and Singapore, where they find more imp and vim enzymes. Uh, and in South America, where KPC and, and uh, vim are also somewhat common. As it relates to the U.S., less than 2% of pseudomonas in that study harbored carbapenemase enzymes. Dr. Bonomo already mentioned this, but this is where we suspect VIM a bit more commonly than NDM. And in fact, NDM-producing pseudomonas is still relatively rare. Um, we see it a little bit in, in kind of uh, Southeast Asia. But for the U.S., for the most part, we don't see a lot of metallo-beta-lactamase-producing pseudomonas. Uh, but depending on where your patient has traveled or maybe where they're coming from, it may be higher on your on your radar. One thing I'd like to um, always keep in mind is that the, these studies, you talk about uh, Crackle and, you know, the, the other study is SNAP that looks at um, Acinetobacter and the one that looks at uh, uh, Pseudomonas is called POP. And, uh, you know, so SNAP, Crackle, POP, you know. You're, Good old you're, Rice Krispie treat, yep. <laughs> yeah, Rice Krispies. Uh, there, but you know, I think the, the big impact of those studies is that um, I think is that uh, you know, for the first time, we have a, a type of study that tries to correlate the clinical with the molecular surveillance that went there. And those isolates were whole, all whole genome sequenced, they were cured, collected, curated, purified, retested. You know, many of them retested again. and. You know, it's it's that kind of investment that was made by the National Institutes of Health, NIAID, and people with a lot of vision, you know, uh, fostering those things. And the work that was done by the ARLG, by, you know, Vance and Chip, you know, to move that and David Van Dyne to coordinate the MDRO network, you know, needs to be recognized. It was a big contribution. And we're lucky, you know, that we have this sense now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's incredible work by all of, all of those teams. So let's get into the inhibitors then, and what we can do about this about these metallobetalactamases. Now that we know now that we know how to find them, they are seemingly increasing in prevalence, and they can be found in any gram negative pathogen, which I think is important when we put treatment options into context. So of the currently available beta-lactamase inhibitors, tazobactam, solbactam, clavulanic acid, avibactam, vaberbactam. Relabactam, and then the newest combination of Delorobactam plus Solbactam, none of those inhibit metallobetalactamase enzymes. Now, that's not to say, and we can talk about these really unique settings, particularly with Delorobactam and Solbactam and the uniqueness in that some of these inhibitors can actually bind to penicillin binding proteins and have their own antibacterial activity in and of itself. So there may be some in vitro killing of some of these pathogens due to that penicillin binding protein activity. But what we're talking about is, do they inhibit the metallobetalactamase enzyme? And for all of those that I just listed, the answer is no. But we do have a pipeline, and we've alluded to this, and now we're going to get into it. So yay, the, the good time has come. 
So Ryan, can you start us off with what inhibitors are in the pipeline and what are we looking at in terms of metallobetalactamase? Yeah, sure. Happy to, Aaron. And I'm just going to um, paraphrase what you said, because I think, and Dr. Bonoma mentioned this earlier, the way these beta-lactamase inhibitors have been developed is we've been making incremental improvements over a long period of time. And, you know, so I think this audience well accepts the fact that the penicillin-based sulfone beta-lactamase inhibitors, tazo, sulfactam, and clavulanic acid don't inhibit metallos. But kind of these newer generation beta-lactamase inhibitors, starting with the diazobicyclooctane uh, group, which we call DBOs. And AV-Bactam was really the first of that class, which had expanded activity, particularly for serine beta-lactamases like KPC, but also AMC and others. And now Relabactam being a, a similar compound in the DPO class. The next inhibitor kind of chronologically that came to the market was Vaberbactam, a boronic acid-based beta-lactamase inhibitor. So again, going back to what Dr. Bonomo said, different mechanisms, different chemical structures that as you'll see coming up here, we've optimized to now inhibit metallobetalactamases. But this was a, a boronic acid beta-lactamase inhibitor that really was targeted for KPC. So let's get into some of the, the newer agents. Durlobactam, you mentioned. Uh, I think of Durlobactam as like the next generation DBO. This is really similar to AV-Bactam that was really optimized to inhibit OXA enzymes. But of course, OXA enzymes we know are class D and not the class B metallos that we're talking about. But the reason we bring up Durlobactam here is something you mentioned, Aaron, is it has intrinsic activity by itself to through penicillin binding protein 2 inhibition. Um, so this is important when we maybe are thinking about some of the enhancing effects of DBOs that might have intrinsic activity. Now, Sulbactam, Durlobactam is marketed for Acenetobacter because of this expanded activity against ox enzymes. But I believe we will be at a point in our future where we're trying to think about the best inhibitor and the best beta-lactam partner to target against specific enzymes. And so it's important to know that Durlobactam is a broad-spectrum beta-lactamase inhibitor. I think of it as AV-Bactam plus expanded activity against ox enzymes. And there are some other nuances. It's a great now, way to put that. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah. And, and so that's not the end of the road, of course, for the DBOs. No, we have so many others to talk about. <laughs> there are so many others, but we're going to try to like limit this discussion to ones that are kind of nearing clinical development. And I think the next two worth mentioning are Zytobactam and Nacubactam. Uh, and Zytobactam appears to be a bit further along in clinical development. And what makes this DBO unique, again, is a newer generation that's been chemically modified, and it doesn't inhibit metallobetalactamases. But it's act, it is very active in combination with cefepime for metallobetalactamase-producing organisms. The reason for that goes back to this enhancing effect, where cefepime largely binds to PBP3, zytobactam largely to PBP2, and so you have this enhancing effect by inhibiting different penicillin-binding proteins. That, as we I'm sure we'll talk about at some point during this episode, is really important when we're starting to see more resistance to certain penicillin-binding proteins in metallobetalactamase-producing organisms. So cefepime zytobactam, very active against metallobetalactamases, not through inhibition, but through this enhancing mechanism. Which Finally, is so cool. I love, I love when things make each other better. Like so I like, said, we have the very... best jobs on the planet, right? Yeah. This, is, this stuff is so cool. And like, you know, the, the, the scientists that are developing these compounds are just so brilliant to kind of think about which structures need to be modified for various enzymes we know that this is, uh, we're playing the long game, right? Bacteria right. will continue to evolve and kind of we just need to adjust as we go. 
Um, so I'll just kind of wrap up because I, I can't wait to hear Dr. Bonomo's thoughts on these compounds. Uh, so I feel selfish for taking more airtime, but let me just I know, mention- I had you start because yeah. what he's going to say is probably better. So Yeah. No. Yeah. To- to- I, you know, totally valid. I, you know, uh, it's like, it's like yeah. JV teeing up yeah. for varsity. Yeah. Just yeah. kidding. Ryan, you're brilliant. Yeah. It's it's. Uh, I'll be the JV team that goes to bar bets with Robert any day. I'm just happy uh, I get to sit here and listen to you guys talk. Honestly, it's like I'm just I'm just so lucky. Okay, sorry. Uh, all right, so Continue. just yes, just to put so a bow on this wait, discussion. In summary, so zytobactam does not actually inhibit metallobetalactamases, yet it 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 does have um, inhibitory. Oh my gosh, it binds to PBP two, so it has its own intrinsic antibacterial activity, which is very neat. Okay, next one. You, you got it. And, and Nacubactam does as well, but, um, you know, maybe similar mechanisms. Uh, okay. So now finally to investigational bicyclic boronic acid, beta-lactamase inhibitors. Um, they've been mentioned briefly already. Taniborbactam is being commercially developed with cefepime. Uh, Taniborbactam, again, a cyclic boronic acid beta-lactamase inhibitor. So maybe like the newest generation of Vaberbactam. It's a broad-spectrum beta-lactamase inhibitor that does inhibit class A, B, C, and some class D beta-lactamases. Now, most notably, of course, is its ability to inhibit metallobetalactamases. This will likely be the first inhibitor on the market that does just that. Um, but as we mentioned in the beginning, metallobetalactamases are diverse. And so to find an inhibitor that inhibits all of them is very difficult. Uh, Tanimorobactam inhibits NDM and VIMP pretty well, but not IMP or imipenemases, uh, and it does not inhibit L1 and stenotropomonas. Um, so this drug is now through phase three clinical development, appears to be moving forward, uh, and I think will give us more ammunition in our armamentarium to combat metallobetalactamases. Now, I'll mention um, cefepime tanimorobactam um, because cefepime binds to PBP3. One of the common mechanisms of resistance that has been recently reported is PBP3 insertions. There's a specific four amino acid insertion um, that does affect the binding capacity of cefepime um, that appears to not be overcome by tanniborobactam. Um, so that's something that we'll have to keep an eye out for. And, and uh, there are some other NDM variants that perhaps tanniborobactam doesn't inhibit as well. And we could get into those as needed. Uh, but finally, I want to mention Zeroborbactam. This is the QPX compound that Robert mentioned earlier. Uh, this is the broadest and most potent um, beta-lactamase inhibitor of those that we've mentioned thus far. In enzyme kinetic studies, Zeroborbactam appears to be very potent. It gets a broad range of metallos, including NDM, VIM. It also inhibits a lot of the IMP variants. Uh, so there's a lot of excitement about Zeroborbactam. Uh, it has not started phase three clinical development yet. Uh, and, but it is still moving forward. So it's, it's super exciting. Uh, it's all right, Robert, I, I need to stop because I can't wait to hear your thoughts here. No, 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 no. Uh, just a couple of things that, you know, I'd like to, uh, add, you know, to some of the discussion. Um, you know, I think that the, uh, beta-lactam enhancing effect is, is really a key thing. And that's a strategic, uh, advantage in a drug design strategy and Zytobactam and Nacobactam both take advantage of that. And I think, you know, uh, the, the other thing, you know, looking at it as a clinician tool, which is my other day job, um, you know, we're going to really welcome cefepime tiny pore back there to the arena. And, you know, this is, you know, I think the, the clinical trials, you know, have been very good, um, uh, very good data in the clinical trials. And, um, 
you know, very effective. And I, I think Cefepine Tiny Board Back to him is going to have an important role, you know, because it has this, you know, ability to overcome the metallovatolactamase by, uh, by the mechanism that we talked about before. But, you know, like every compound, you know, out there, we have to be cautious. There, you know, there is a concern, you know, um, that recently published an AAC uh, by Alejandro Villa, Laurent Peral, and Maria Mojica and Daisoke Uno, Uno um, that, you know, resistance to cefepine tiny board bactam can be uh, can be selected for or can, you know, and we there's a paper out in Lancet that shows, you no. know, the NDM9 issue that, that was recently reported. And, but I think that, you know, that's not a black spot on, on the drug. It's, it's more of a advantage because now we know, now we know what to look for. So, you know, we, and I'm sure, you know, with cefidericol, we've talked about it a little bit, you know, cefidericol is, you know, stable to NDMs. But, you know, we all know that in the M5, then when if there's a, you know, a mutation in the iron transport pathway, you know, it's going to affect cefidericol. And cefidericol is promised to be uh, uh, married with the QPX compound, you know, so, so it's a rule of actim. So we're going to have a NDN stable broad spectrum beta lactamase inhibitor that's going to be used. So that's going to be a big step forward. But, you know, we always got to think bacteria are less smarter than we are. You know, they've been on this planet a lot longer than we are, and they're genetically very, very promiscuous. You know, they'll mate with anybody, um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, that gene transfer and all those things that have led to the evolution of resistance before, you know, will, uh, uh, will lead to evolution of resistance again. And what I fear has really happened is that um, paradigm by which we anticipate the evolution of beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor or drug resistance has changed, right? Before we say, well, you put, you put an antibiotic out there, then three years later, resistance emerges, and then, you know, that's it. I think now it's the opposite. Right now, I think resistance is out there already. We may not have found it, uh, but it's already out there. And what I think is happening is that when the drug is released now, it's not being released in the same context you know, that it was 20 years ago. I think now there's been a lot of collateral damage and who knows what we created under the, under the woodwork. You know, we, we could have already created problems that we, we can't anticipate. But, you know, I, I do feel though that, you know, we're at a good point too because the design of these compounds, the cyclic boronate, like tiny borbactam, zero borbactam is another cyclic boronate, you know. This was a big advance, you know, and, you know, credit to Venaterex and uh, credit to uh, um, uh, uh, Cupex for doing this and the scientific teams, you know, because they're, those smart chemists figured it out. They figured it out. They had a very good insights into mechanism. And what I hope in the future is, is that we can have one compound that is able to inhibit the beta-lactamase effectively all classes and also take out not only one PBB, but multiple PBBs. And, you know, the strategic design of a compound like that, that demonstrates what I like to call target redundancy, you know, many, many targets are hit at the same time is going to be a real important addition. And we need to give credit to, you know, the development of Soldur and Entesis. That was a game-changing 
uh, a beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor combination because it gave us legs against Acinetobacter that we 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 didn't have before, that, that we didn't have before. So that was a really welcome addition. And, you know, those drugs couldn't have been developed without the experience of Tazavi, Imirel, and Merovaber. We, we needed to learn how to use these drugs so that, you know, when a drug like Solder comes out there, you know, we, we are well poised. Then, you know, credit also, you know, uh, you know, Venatorex is going to be developing a, a oral uh, pro-drug of Taniborbactam. And I think, you know, that's going to have a very unique role because all of us don't want to keep people in the hospital on IVs forever, you know, or for as long as it takes. So we, you know, we'll need to do that. And, you know, that's going to be a welcome addition. And, you know, there's also some really good basic science, you know, that, that's gone out there. There's using bis bismuth has also been a nice development. You know, bismuth is able to displace the, uh, you know, the metal ions in the active site, which is there, you know, which is important. And, you know, I think, uh, uh, I think the future is positive. The future is positive. We're going to have a lot of different options. And, uh, you know, I, Cephiderical was a big game changer in our field. You know, it, 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 it took, uh, it took a novel pathway into the cell, you know, co-opted the iron transport pathway. It was stable to metallobetalactamases. You know, it's a chloro, you know, catechol, you know, big, big drug. And, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it was a, a very smart, it was a very smart development. So, um, you know, luckily, uh, you know, uh, I've been in this business since 1983. I saw synthetazidine come out, you know, I remember using it on New Year's Eve, you know, one year, you know, as an experimental drug and, um, you know, and then, you know, now we have such a larger armamentarium, but. You know, uh, since 1983, we, we learned to be cautious. ESBLs were first described in 1983, too. As we use these drugs, they, they were discovered. And I think, you know, as we use these really powerful, exciting new drugs, you know, cefepine, tiny barbactam, you know, zero-barbactam with uh, cefederical and others as they come down the pike, you know, uh, we have to have our antennae up. We have to have our antennae up and be very careful stewards of what we're doing. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for that history. And I think it, it is. It's amazing science and it's really exciting. So to summarize what's in the pipeline before we move into treatment. So Delorobactam, Solbactam, not in the pipeline, just recently FDA approved, available to order for Acinetobacter most specifically. But Delorobactam's PVP activity will be interesting to see if it's used for some of these unique metallos with PVP mutants that become resistant to other inhibitors. But Delorobactam, Nacubactam, and Zytobactam all have PBP2 activity but do not inhibit metallobetalactamases. And then Tanaborbactam and Zeroborbactam are also in the pipeline. They inhibit metallobetalactamases. Some slight nuance, Tanaborbactam does not inhibit IMP and does not inhibit the L1 in steno. Zeroborbactam does have a little bit more inhibitory activity against IMP, but it does look worse there than it does against VIM and NDMs. Zeroborbactam is being developed as an oral agent as well. At least they had phase one looking at IV and oral, and I think that point is so well taken. All of our inhibitors are IV so far, except for clavulonic acid and, and augmentin, of course. Um, but I think we do very much need oral options. So love seeing the companies that are looking into orals and oral prodrugs. And then I will link in the show notes the reference Dr. Bonomo cited about tanaborbactam and the resistance we're seeing in NDMs emerging 
it's really fascinating. There's essentially these escape variants with single amino acid substitutions that are leading to tannoborbactam resistance, particularly in NDM9. So that is something to watch for. And I think it's really interesting. So we'll link those articles in the show notes. But let's get into treatment. And so we've talked a lot about AV Bactam. And very early in the episode, we talked about Astreanam. The combination of Astreanam AV Bactam is actually also in the pipeline being developed by Pfizer for the treatment of gram negative agents in general, but particularly metallobetalactamases because Astreanam is stable. It does not get hydrolyzed. Oh my gosh. End of the episode, I like learned how to not talk apparently, but Astreanam does not get hydrolyzed by metallobetalactamases as Dr. Bonomo described earlier. And then AV Bactam comes along to inhibit every other enzyme that's likely present since these are often carried on plasmids with multiple resistance mechanisms. Astreanum AV Bactam in the pipeline, we don't have it now, but we do have ceftazidime AV Bactam and we do have Astreanum. And so we've combined those to try to get creative and treat these metallos in the clinic today. Our other options that we have to pull off the shelf right now are cefiterocol, and then, of course, our non-beta-lactams like fluoroquinolones, maybe a tetracycline, although those are rarely susceptible, um, and some other options. So, Ryan, in our last couple of minutes here, can you give us an overview of the treatment options um, and and how we position these? Yeah, sure. I, I'd be happy to. And uh, let me just start by saying, you know, uh, this is Infectious Diseases 101, right? So uh, these are an enterobacteriales. They can cause a lot of different infections from urinary tract infections to systemic infections and pneumonia. Um, so it's always an important consideration when you're picking the right antibiotic. And honestly, I usually start with the non-beta-lactams like fluoroquinolones or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. If those are active and I'm treating a urinary tract infection, for example, those are great options. You mentioned tigacycline or even arabocycline for intra-abdominal infections. So I think it's a good note for the stewards out there is you see this crazy enzyme, it doesn't mean you need to go looking through the pipeline to find the next inhibitor to work. Uh, sometimes you may have well-known options available to you. But in the most likely event, uh, you'll see metallos that are resistant to quinolones, tetracyclines, and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, unfortunately. And that's where we do need to start thinking about uh, enzyme inhibition and ways to overcome the underlying mechanism of resistance. And Dr. Manoa mentioned this, but uh, there's never been a time where this is more true, where we target mechanisms of resistance with our therapeutic options now. And that's very much how I look at metallobetalactamases as well. Um, so the most common strategy that's that's used at, at least in our center is, as you mentioned, Aaron partnering ACE tree and AM with ceftazidime, AV Bactam. And the notion there, again, using AV Bactam as a protector of ACE tree and AM against serine beta-lactamases allowing Astreanam to have its activity against the metallos for which it's stable against. Now, importantly with this combination, there's some nuances to note. Uh, first of which is you'd often like to co-administer these products, uh, usually giving them concomitantly over a prolonged infusion is the best strategy until Astreanam avibactam is commercially available, uh, and that may be in, in another year or so. Uh, so if you can give them concomitantly, that's the best strategy. But I think a real challenge to clinicians is we don't have a great way of doing susceptibility testing for ceftazidime AV Bactam plus Astreanam right now. Uh, Dr. Bonomo's lab has taught us how to kind of get clever with e-test strips and other ways to kind of infer susceptibility. Um, but that's really important because, again, we are seeing now some isolates that might be not susceptible to this combination. And, and that's not, um, you know, a detriment to the combination. It's to what Dr. Bonomo said. Now we have better ways of identifying resistance and emerging uh, mechanisms. 
Uh, so Ceftaz AV plus ACE Trinam is probably one of the frontline agents. Uh, it's broadly active against all the metallos we've talked about today, including NDM, IMPFIM, and stenotrophomonas. Uh, so if you can use it, it's a great option. And one of the things that's also unique about that combination is we actually have some clinical data now. Um, a lot of the clinical data with this combination come from Italy out of Marco Falcone's group. Uh, they initially published 102 patients with bacteremia, where the outcomes of those patients that had metallo-beta-lactamase-producing organisms causing bacteremia were significantly improved for patients treated with ceftaz AV plus ACE compared to other active antibiotics. Now, there's a lot of interesting details in this paper, but the outcomes appear to be most disproportionate for patients who got colistin. Um, and this would make sense, right? Rather than giving colistin, we use a beta-lactam combination. Um, but patients who got non-colistin-based regimens seem to do pretty good too, supporting this idea that quinolones or tetracyclines might be okay. The same group has a more recent paper now with 343 patients. Uh, again, very similar findings, and they did a propensity score matched analysis showing that Ceftaz AV plus H3NAM was independently associated with a mortality benefit compared to colistin. So we have a mechanism that makes sense. Uh, we have drugs that are available and we have some clinical data. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's one of the preferred options. The other option that we've mentioned is Cefiderocol, which is unique for many of the reasons mentioned by Dr. Bonomo. It is one of the only beta-lactams that is stable against hydrolysis against most metallos. Uh, this includes NDM and uh, L1 and stenotrophomonas. So I think Cefiderocol is still a viable treatment option. Uh, many labs can test for it, um, and that's another option uh, benefit is it's maybe a little bit easier for heterobacteriales for susceptibility testing. I won't mention acetobacter susceptibility testing. Um, but the in vitro data looks okay. One of the things I'll say that's notable about the in vitro data for sephiterocol for metallos is the MICs appear to be a bit higher for NDM specifically, uh, and they kind of cluster around the breakpoint. And so I know when we've looked at our metallos here in Pittsburgh, um, we see a, a significant proportion that are not susceptible to sephiterocol, uh, and many of those have NDM, and some of those also have NDM plus PBB3 insertions. Uh, which appear to negatively impact sephiterocol. So again, it's just a clinician's choice to kind of go through these options to make sure they know which one is best for their patient. Yeah, there was a nice case report the Hopkins group just published. It's an OFID like last month or, the, or 2023. So maybe, oh, it's only January 2024. Yeah, last month of uh, a patient who actually traveled to India for a kidney transplant came back. So again, travel history is super important. They had an E. coli ST176 isolate that had an NDM5, which we've talked about has been problematic. And it was actually resistant to both sephiterocol and the ceftaz av trinam combination because of these modified PBP3s, which we're seeing cause resistance for trinam av bactam and sephiterocol. It had a truncated iron binding protein, I think, which the iron mechanisms of resistance and sephiterocol are kind of fascinating because that's its unique Trojan horse mechanism of action. But then also iron is so essential to life that we thought resistance would develop slower there because there's such a fitness cost for the organism. But we are seeing these iron deficiencies and mutations. And then I think it also had um, some pretty advanced AMPC isolates and things like that that were elevating ceftazidim MICs at, at least. So, yeah, I think that's a great summary. Dr. Brown, anything to add to treatment? Well, you know, going back, um, we cut our teeth on uh, Dr. Maria Mojica did some very nice work a long time ago uh, looking at uh, the combination Tazavia-Strianam. And it was, again, steno, which is a, has an L1 metallo-beta-lactamase. It didn't, you know, chromosomally encoded. 
and um, so that kind of uh, kind of started the wheel rolling. You know whether that and, and that was purely uh, mechanistic insight. You know it was known that avibactam could inhibit some you know, inhibit L two. You know and we know that H3NM did not form a product uh, catalytically productive complex with L one and ceftazidine was there also at the same time. Create so we were you know we, you know kind of allowing you know a sub you know a beta lactam or monobactam to get to the target so and then you know uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know Trisimner taught us you know basically how to do the Tazabi Trisimner MIC she published a nice paper in uh, in AAC and Tom Lodi's uh, did very nice work uh, uh, you know how the combination should be dosed so. We've come a long way with that. Um, I, I think that, you know, to quote a rock and roll song, the future's uncertain. <laughs> and, um, you know, we have to, you know, we'll have to see how these things play out. And I think the bigger challenge is not, not only knowing what to give a patient with that, but the real big challenge is going to be for you guys, how we dose these drugs correctly, uh, because dosing really matters and using them appropriately for the right duration counts. And the challenge that you guys will have is how do you work with your microbiology colleagues, you know, to figure out which combination you're going to test and, you know, uh, you know which is going to be more cost-effective, which is going to be more potent, uh, which is going to be the easiest to give a patient. And it's going to be very tricky because the more options we have, the bigger the challenge is going to be on the clinical microbiology level testing all these different combinations. And you guys have already figured out that maybe more than one combination may be better. And I don't know if we're ever going to get to that space where, um, you know, you guys will have to tell us, you know, if you use this inhibitor with this beta-lactam, you're going to do better than that inhibitor and that beta-lactam. So yep. the challenge is really going to be up to you guys because you guys understand the PKPD relationships. You guys understand how these drugs can and should be dosed. And, you know, we have to take care of the, you know, a lot of the clinical stuff, you know, figuring out what's going on and stuff like that. When, uh, But, you know, it's going to be a real challenge in the future. But it's something that's exciting. And, you know, like you said, we, we're never going to be bored. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because I did have one final question for you guys. I think this is fascinating. The relationship between the parent drug the inhibitor exposures and all of this is what it's why we have jobs and it's what we love to play with. We get this question a lot. Ceftazidime, AV-Bactam plus Astrianam. Ryan said we have in vitro data, we have mechanistic data, we have clinical data. What about Miro-Vaber Astrianam or Imirel Astrianam? Could those work too if I don't have Ceftazidime, AV-Bactam? Yeah, I can take that. The short answer is probably yes, Aaron. Um, but, you know, the thing that's really interesting about all these combinations is it really depends on the bug. I mean, we've largely talked about enterobacteriales today, but mm -hmm. if you're talking about an NDM-producing pseudomonas, um, maybe Astrinam is not the right partner, beta-lactam, because Astrinam is a weak anti-pseudomonal agent and there's other mechanisms of resistance. Um, so I think, yeah, testing is really important and having a lab that might get creative in testing for you will help inform some of these options. But I would caution also to remember the, the host organism, which can vary from metallos, from pseudomonas, uh, or maybe chromosomally encoded other AMC organisms like Enterobacter or Citrobacter, uh, as compared to E. coli and Klebsiella. The activity of these combinations may vary across those bugs. Uh, so I'll just add that caution as well. 
Yeah, that's a great point, Ryan. Thank you so much. <laughs> and with that, you guys, the time has come for our closing segment, which we call uh, Amongst the Breakpoints Faithful, I Feel Nerdy. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. So for today's I Feel Nerdy, I want you guys to share the details, obviously, with you know patient protection first and foremost. But what's an MBL case that really stood out to you and why? Or if you don't want to get into a patient case, which I understand, then what inhibitor in the pipeline are you most excited about and why? Dr. Bnoma, do you want to go first? Um, I'm, uh, I think that the uh, new cyclic boronates uh, um, uh, are going to be really interesting. I think the QPX and tiny borbactam are going to be very, very interesting. Um, I, I want to give another shout out to the basic scientists in the field that are continuing to push the envelope, you know, Alejandro Graciela Maurer. You know, she's been very good design on the thiazolidines. I think that's, uh, I'm excited about that. And, uh, you know, I, I think there are some that are still sleeping. We haven't heard about them yet. And uh, I think, you know, there was just a release this week, you know, a nature about a novel antibiotic that, you know, is coming out pretty soon. It's not a beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor combination, but I, I you know, I think uh, Rush is developing an entirely new, t- new class of agents. Um, and uh, that are LPXC inhibitors. And I think, you know, the uh, uh, we're getting smart, but I don't know if we're going to beat them. But <laughs> We're and, trying, though. It's awesome science. We're trying. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I think the, the other thing that's really important is that um, for the first time, we have multidisciplinary teams that are looking at this problem. And, you know, you have chemists that are talking to biochemists, that are talking to pharmacologists, that are talking to microbiologists. So, I like the interplay in between the different groups because everybody uh, brings something cool to the table. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Ryan, what about you? Yeah, I'll, I'll share a case, Aaron. And actually, it's a case that you were involved with um, in 2019, pre-pandemic. Uh, we took care of uh, a liver transplant patient. He had a living-related donor uh, that was actually his daughter. Uh, and this guy was from India originally. He had last been there four years ago. Um, his daughter, who was his donor, was last year a year ago. He had an uh, uneventful liver transplant, but about five days after his liver transplant, he had a bio leak and became bacteremic. Uh, we found it coli, and at that time, we weren't using any rapid molecular diagnostics, so we didn't know that it was uh, had any specific mechanism, but it was carbapenem-resistant. Uh, we did PCR in our research laboratory and found NDM, which at this point in time in 2019 was very new to us. And so we had, okay, we have NDM. We've learned from Dr. Bonobo's paper. We put the patient on ceftazavidase trienam. Uh, well, as part of that workup, uh, we set up some, some testing in, in our research lab with ceftazavidase trienam e-test. This is right around Thanksgiving. So this is the part where you come in here and I remember calling you asking you to go up to my lab to read these results while I was deep frying a turkey and drinking a cold beverage. Uh, and lo and behold, what we found uh, in doing these synergy results is that the Ceftaz AV plus Acetrina MIC was fairly high. It was uh, 16. Uh, we've since confirmed this with growth microdilution. So this was really perplexing. Why perhaps the, the preferred treatment for NDM had higher level MICs? And so we subsequently worked up this case and done whole genome sequencing. And it's very similar to the case that you mentioned with Hopkins is that we found a PBP3 insertion. We thought, uh, okay, what else are we going to do? We tested cefiterocol and actually there's cross resistance with cefiterocol because again, the target there is PBP3. 
So this really raises a whole host of challenges and I think epitomizes what we're dealing with with metallos. Number one, you may not know the best treatment option. You may not be able to find the right enzyme initially. And if you find the enzyme and you're able to test your treatment options, they may not be active. And in this case, unfortunately, they weren't. Um, now, the patient ended up doing really well, but there's still this kind of unknown with what to do with, let's say, an NTM that's not susceptible to ACE tree and maybe Bactam or Cefiteracol. And this is where maybe some of these new pipeline inhibitors that we've talked about or some of these enhancers are really going to be critical because perhaps some of the surveillance data coming out of India suggests that these PPP3 insertions are pretty common in that region, uh, suspect, you know, largely meaning that they may be common in other regions as well. Uh, so this is a case that's always stood out to me. It taught me a lot about metallobetalactamases and some of the challenges clinicians are facing now and will face. And then it's also given me some hope for the future in reading about many of the new antibiotics we've talked about today. If, like, a, for instance, cefepime zytobactam was available, it might have been a great treatment option for this guy. Uh, and to answer your question about the favorite uh, beta-lactamase inhibitor I'm excited about, uh, zero-borbactam is really exciting. If you look at some of the underlying enzyme kinetics for that, for that inhibitor, uh, I think it will help us advance clinical practice in a meaningful way. Yeah. Uh, so. Can't wait to plug and play with all these beta-lactamase inhibitors and see kids. Sometimes when you work the holidays, good things can come out of it. So that's what I heard in there. I heard I was working on Thanksgiving. That case to me definitely stands out. Another very quick one that Ryan and I use in a lot of talks we give is we had a, a guy who was an Uber driver in Pittsburgh, literally had never left the city of Pittsburgh, which is actually common. Pittsburgh's like a people born here and stay here and love it kind of city. Uh, and that he had a he had a Vim producing Enterobacter isolate. And we were like, oh, no, this came right out of Pittsburgh. So that was a pivotal case for me too. And I also learned a lot about microbiology in that case. But with that, thank you so much, both of you. And thank you to our listeners for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. Again, funding for this episode was provided by Shinogi Incorporated. We're very thankful to them. This episode was hosted by Aaron McCreary and Breakpoints was created by Julie Ann Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Drs. Megan Klatt and Jeanette Bouchard. It was peer-reviewed by Christopher Baladad and Justin Ma, and it was edited by Emily Plosh. The executive producer of Breakpoint is myself, Aaron McCreary, and our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.